0: Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking, so without further ado, let's get started. In previous episodes of the podcast, we have discussed how children learn to speak one or more languages, how this is part of our evolution and socialization as a species, and how parents can support the acquisition process. In the next two episodes, I'd like to look at the process of raising children with two or more languages in more detail, how to become empowered parents and to talk about how schools can support their multilingual learners. I am delighted to welcome International Bilingual Educational Consultant, Senior Lecturer on Multilingual Education at Oxford Brookes University, member of the Executive Committee for NALDIC, the National Association for English as an Additional Language in the UK and mother of three trilingual children, Eowyn Chrisfield, to the podcast today. Hi Eowyn, thank you for joining me. Hi Kate, uh, thank you for having me. So Eowyn, you are a great advocate of parents and teachers knowing some of the theory of bilingualism. Why do we need to be informed about the theory? Doesn't bilingualism just happen naturally in the right context?
1: I think those are two very big questions to, to get started with. And the first thing that I'll address is your second question. Doesn't bilingualism just happen naturally in the right context? And and in the right context, it's true that children can seem to acquire two or more languages kind of effortlessly and without any clear intervention on the part of the parents. Um, but, you know, that's really quite specific to bilingual or multilingual communities. So for example, Uh, you know, in India, where most families have a mix of different languages and different people speak different languages to the children, but they're surrounded by people who use those languages, bilingualism can seem to develop quite naturally. But the smaller your community of speakers is, the more parents need to think about kind of what are the key criteria for success in raising their children bilingually. So, for example, a Greek-French couple living in London May have a very small Greek community and a small French community and a very large English community so they'll need to think a little more carefully about um, about how they're going to help their child or children learn both those languages. The reason you need to be informed about the theory if you don't live in a multilingual community is that two reasons really first of all you need to be in charge of the process and you need to understand kind of what are the roadblocks you might meet and how to how to overcome those but also because a lot of people have quite strong opinions about languages and children and those children uh, you know and those people may well give you advice that is based on you know nothing or no particular research and if you don't know yourself that they're not correct, you may follow their advice and end up in a situation where your child is not learning the languages you want them to. So partly it's so that you could be proactive. In planning and partly it's as a defensive measure. If you're, you know, given bad advice by say, you know, a classic example on Twitter is the health visitor who said, Oh, you shouldn't speak your language with your baby, you should only speak English. If you know what you're doing and you've read the research, you'll feel much more uh empowered to do what you know is right.
0: Yes, that's true. There are some really prevalent myths, aren't there, and misconceptions about raising bilingual children. Let's have a think about the often cited children are sponges. How much truth is there in this claim?
1: Uh, this, is one of, this is one of the bees in my bonnet. Um, and I think that, again, we're, we're confusing kind of different areas of research. There is something that we call Bilingual First Language Acquisition or BFLA. That's children who are born into bilingual communities, bilingual families or bilingual communities. And they're learning both languages from birth, from people that they live with. That's one kind of bilingualism. And when you look at how human infants learn language in general, whether they're bilingual or monolingual, it can seem to be kind of a sponge-like process where we talk to them and talk to them and talk to them, and eventually they talk back, and that was kind of easy and magical. And children who are raised in bilingual families get talked to in two languages, and kind of magically they can use both those languages. And so we take that kind of initial capacity for language acquisition in young children and we apply it to situations where it doesn't really apply so for example a child starting a new school starting school in a new language when they're six everybody will say oh don't worry children are sponges and they soak up languages and that's completely not true for a six-year-old in the same in the way that it may be, of marginally accurate for a six-month-old, and so that leads people to make poor choices for older children, presuming that it will be easy and effortless for them to pick up another language later, and outside that kind of, you know, very young bilingual first language acquisition, that's not the case. There's a huge range of normal in terms of how long it takes kids to acquire a new language, and that's not recognized when we consider them to
0: be sponges. That's really interesting thank you. Another perceived kind of research fact that I've seen a lot on social media is that there's a clear cognitive advantage for bilingual children and in your new book which is coming out next year, you call this a red herring. So why is that?
1: So I think that um, you know this is it's a complicated field and it's a complicated topic to discuss but kind of in a nutshell, for many, many years, there was a, a particular growing body of research that showed all of these cognitive advantages to bilinguals, that you know, they were better at task selection, that they were better at executive function, that they were better at all these things. And, that, and you know, that lasted up until about you know, 10 years ago. And then there started to be kind of competing research platforms saying, but you know, actually, is this true? Let's look at the research more closely and so what has kind of been agreed upon is that that research was quite limited in terms of how many people it looked at and what kinds of things that it looked at and that also there was a real tendency in academia and this is problematic to publish the results of studies that showed a positive advantage and to not publish studies that didn't show any advantage so we call that a publication bias and so you know in more recent research they're continuing to investigate this but looking really more specifically at you know, how bilingual do you need to be before that becomes true? Or, you know, exactly how does it work in the brain? And so there's kind of more interest now from a neurolinguistic side, as well as a cognitive processing side. I think it's a red herring because I don't think you should ever choose to have your child develop as a bilingual because you think it's going to make them smarter. That to me is completely irrelevant uh, and and not really what we should be thinking about. There are lots of other more important things that come out of becoming bilingual as a child that are, you know, more valuable on a personal and a social level.
0: So if bilingualism doesn't necessarily make our children cleverer, what are the actual advantages of raising bilingual children? And I mean, to the children themselves, their families, and even to society as a whole.
1: So I think to you, to, to the children themselves, you know, first and foremost, learning more than one age, language from a younger age, Can often be more successful simply because you have a longer time to develop and perhaps not so many kind of societal pressures on you at the time. There is, you know, quite convincing research that if you've already become a speaker of two or more languages when you're young. It's easier for you to learn additional languages when you're older. So there's kind of a, you know, a bilingual advantage in that area. Bilingual children are often also more tuned into how language works so you know for example my daughter when she was two and a half she was French dominant and my husband's an English speaker and so I would say to her in French it's time for dinner Maddie and she would turn and say to her father mommy says it's time for dinner in English and so you know that facility to understand who speaks what language and why and to translate and, and to mediate meaning for people is a really really good skill to develop from a young age. In terms of families, it depends on the family, you know, the the family situation, but certainly if children live in families where more than one language is spoken by the extended family, not being able to use that language will cut them off from, you know, who they are and where they come from, from parts of their family, which is problematic in really lots of different ways. And in terms of society, you know, one of the interesting branches of research now on young bilinguals is that children who are exposed to and acquire more than one language from a fairly young age tend to be a bit more open-minded and, and better communicators. So they're they're less afraid of people who are different from them, and more open to trying to negotiate meaning with people who don't immediately understand them. And I think, in terms of society as a whole, that open-mindedness and that um, you know ability to deal with difference and to be um, kind of, you know, empathetic communicators is really, really important.
0: I agree with you wholeheartedly. I have um, a nice little anecdote about this little boy called John who used to come to Babel Babies and he, you know, had so quite a bit of Spanish input from his parents and he'd done some of our kind of multilingual classes. And they went to a barbecue and there was a family there who were Chinese speakers and they'd just come over and they were learning English. And another boy, the same age as John, Kind of avoided them, whereas John trotted up and said, Hey, how do you say hello in Chinese? Because in Spanish you say hola, and in German you say Guten Tag, and in French you say bonjour. And he kind of just immediately adopted them and wanted to chat to them. So I thought that was really lovely, a nice anecdote about how it makes you curious and open minded and feel like talking to new people is exciting rather than something to be feared.
1: I absolutely agree. And I think that, you know, the more children can be. Um, kind of interactive with people the more they'll grow up into adults who are also kind of risk takers and willing to have a try or have a go at communicating with people who don't necessarily understand them on the
0: first go. That's it and when I do tell people about my early years languages work through Babel Babies I'm often told oh yes the earlier the better but this is also problematic isn't it? Why is it important to understand the implication of saying the earlier the better when it comes to language learning?
1: So again, you know, the earlier the better can be true, but it can also be false depending on, you know, the child and the situation. For some things, in particular for acquiring the sounds of a new language, it is true that earlier tends to be advantageous. But what we need to be careful of is that we're not focusing on learning of other languages at the expense of languages children already have at home. So for example, there's a real tendency now, kind of globally to choose for bilingual education or for immersion education, because people want their child to learn a new language. And, and that's great. And it's, you know, a generally not always successful way to do it. But if you have a child, for example, who speaks, I don't know, for example, you know Polish and Spanish at home already, and the parents decide that to put them in French immersion, and they live in England, in English, something's got to give in that equation and it's likely to be the home languages and so earlier is better if the home languages are maintained and developed properly earlier is not better if we're trying to replace the home language or home languages with a different language normally a higher status language that's when it becomes problematic and a kind of a secondary concern is that earlier is better if we persist young children can learn languages You know, to to an age appropriate level fairly quickly, but they also lose them very quickly. Um, And so putting your child in a French kindergarten for three years and then putting them in all English school for the rest of their lives that French probably will not stay with them. There'll be knock on positive effects, but in terms of the longevity of the language use, you may not, you may think that, oh, they had French for three years, they'll be bilingual forever. And that's not the case.
0: That's really interesting. I've definitely noticed over the last decade that there's quite a trend for raising bilingual kids now, even in monolingual contexts at home and in the community. So I was wondering, are there any downsides to sending your children to bilingual school or to teaching children languages that we don't actually speak or have any intention of learning ourselves?
1: I think, again, as long as we're protecting the child's home language, whatever language they've been strongest in from birth, there's no problem at all at sending them to bilingual schools. Um, and I have no issues with people using languages with their children that they don't speak themselves or teaching them. Uh, you know, in, in Canada, French immersion is really popular and kids go to French immersion from kindergarten through grade 12 and the vast majority of them have parents who speak very little French at all. That's not problematic, um, but I think it's, you know, it, it's important to understand that choosing to add a language into a child's repertoire can impact lots of different things and it should be one of the factors we consider when looking at educational options but not the only factor that we consider
0: yes there seems to be kind of a high status link to it in some contexts like bilingualism is a very desirable thing but like you say you've got to look at the whole child have a new language isn't separate to their kind of well-being and holistic development yes
1: and i think that you can see that in the general media you know all these
0: headlines
1: you know over the last however many months you know that the uk is going to be at a deficit for languages and you know not enough people are learning languages in the uk and not enough students are studying languages but that's completely disregarding all of the children who are bilingual in english and urdu or english punjabi or english polish or english romanian It's just, you know, kind of glossed over because it's not high status bilingualism. So it's all about English speakers not learning enough French or German and completely electing All of that community bilingualism that exists already in the country. And that's not, you know, that's not specific to the UK that happens all over the world where of minority languages are disadvantaged in terms of talking about the benefits of bilingualism, but everybody wants their child to learn. For example, French, because wouldn't that be wonderful?
0: Yes, it's a very chic thing to do. A term I've seen recently on social media is semilingualism, and it seemed to be being used as a scare tactic for shaming parents in saying that they shouldn't allow their children to mix up the languages. So, what is semilingualism, and where does it come from?
1: So, semilingualism is a, you know, it's an old term, and it's one we don't tend to use in applied linguistics anymore. It was kind of coined in a time where um, studies on bilingual children were in their infancy, and what they were doing, which we still do to, to a certain extent in in bilingualism research, is they were they were tracking bilingual development of these children, and they were measuring them against how monolingual children use that language. So, for example, a child who was learning French and German at three years old, they would measure their French and their German against a monolingual child and say, oh, well, they haven't got as many words. They're obviously semilingual. They don't have either language properly. And when we set benchmark for properly at a monolingual level, it's true that bilinguals use language differently. It's true that, you know, up until about the age of four years old, young bilinguals won't have the same number of words in either of their languages as a monolingual child. But if you add their words together, they actually have more. And so it's, it, it's kind of an argument that's built on the false presumption that to be successful, you need to sound like a monolingual. This has been a big issue in second language acquisition research for a long time. We've started acknowledging it in the last decade or so. But when you look at kind of the the robust research that's out there, it's still based on this idea that a proper bilingual sounds like a monolingual in each of their languages. And that's just not the case because when you've got two or three language systems in your brain functioning at the same time, you're just going to do things slightly differently and slightly differently doesn't mean wrong. And so... There, you know, it's hugely problematic to imply that children who mix their languages are doing that because they're semi-lingual. Children mix their languages for lots of different reasons. Sometimes they mix them for practical reasons. I just don't know that word in the other language yet because nobody's used it with me and that's fine. But bilinguals of all ages also mix their languages for pragmatic reasons because they like how something sounds in one language better or because they're talking to a person who uses both and that kind of linguistic control of being able to mix your languages meaningfully is really a sign of success in language acquisition and so when you listen to children mix their languages and you listen to what they're doing normally what they're doing is showing how integrated and powerful their system is sometimes they're showing that they don't have a word that they need in a particular language, but that's something that can be easily remedied.
0: I suppose it depends with whom they've been learning to speak that particular language, because I know my children, they do different activities with different grandparents. For example, they always cook cakes with my mum, but they never cook cakes with my husband's mother. So, you know, they're not going to learn the same vocabulary, are they? If their two sets of grandparents speak different languages, then you know they might learn more Spanish cooking vocabulary or you know more german gardening vocabulary i guess
1: absolutely and that's what you know when we talk about bilingualism and successful bilingualism is to be able to use a language in a context you need it and a purpose for which you need it and so you're absolutely right if your mother is italian and does all the cooking all of your early language about cooking will be italian that doesn't mean that you're not also a german speaker but if your german speaking parent doesn't cook with you you just won't have those words and so again it's that f- that false presumption that being able to use a language means being able to use it all the time it always comes back to the context in which you hear it and the purpose for which you need it
0: so is there no such thing then as the perfect bilingual that we should aspire to it's again it's something i've seen on social media that you know you can be kind of two monolinguals in one body and this is the perfect bilingual
1: I think that I I think that that's absolutely false. I think we used to talk about this idea of a balanced bilingual equally good in both languages. But even if you're equally good in both languages, there are going to be differences in how you use the language. The language is because of the influence of the different systems. So, you know, I'm an English French bilingual and sometimes even though obviously you can hear I'm perfectly fluent in English, sometimes I'll make a sentence in English that that draws on French uh, sentence structure just because at that moment, it, it communicates my meaning better. And so, you, you could argue that that means French is dominant for me because I'm using French sentence structure, but French is absolutely not my dominant language right now. And so, if you can do what you need to do in a language and do it effectively, that's going to be your target. And so, this is why, for example, you know, you see, you know, in African countries, say in South Africa, It's really unusual to meet somebody who speaks fewer than four or five languages. That doesn't mean they can use them all equally and do exactly the same things in those languages. It means that, you know, this is the language I use in my community when I go out with friends, when I go to the market. This is the language I use with my grandmother who lives in a village and can only speak this language. And so, you know, in different contexts, they use a different language. But you can't say, oh, you're not a speaker of this language if you can't use it everywhere. And so, again, false presumption, what it means to be bilingual.
0: Yeah, we need to start kind of debunking this idea that there is a perfect bilingual, don't we? Because it's just not really reflective of how bilingualism is in reality for a lot of people.
1: And I think it's detrimental a lot of times for children whose parents feel that they should measure up to some monolingual standard and particularly grandparents tend you know have this tendency as well you know your say, spanish child being raised in london doesn't sound as good as the spanish child being raised in spain well sounds different because they have a different linguistic ex, you know experience but different isn't necessarily bad or wrong when, when it comes to language
0: yes so um what is passive bilingualism Ailin, and what can parents do to prevent it
1: So passive bilingualism is essentially when a child can understand a language, but doesn't use it actively. So they'll listen to you and understand what you want, but they're not going to speak it themselves. It's really common um, For children to develop into passive bilingualism when the parent speaks a minority language, but also speaks the majority language. So, for example, if you're a Greek Speaker raising your child in London and your child knows you speak English they're going to default to using English with you if that's easier for them. And so they'll listen to you in Greek and they'll do what you want in Greek. But when they answer you back, it's going to be in English. Whether, you know, what parents can do to prevent it. it, I guess it's a question of, do you need to prevent it? Sometimes you do. And I think sometimes you just need to accept that that's what it's going to be at a particular time. The best thing you can do to prevent it is to put your child into situations where that language is really necessary. So for example, going to visit family who only speaks greek will push the child to be able to use greek because if they use english they're not going to get the ice cream from grandma um and so a lot of kids will have kind of a cyclical bilingualism where over the year when they're at school in english and you know surrounded by english their their greek gets more and more passive and then they go back for holidays and it becomes more active again um and so i guess it's a question of parental time and your, your goals for your children are really important. If this is a language you want your child to eventually be able to read and write fluently, then you need to put more time into it. You need to help see how much input they're getting. And you need to find those situations where they absolutely need to use the language um, that gets less time. So it's what, it's what we call monolingual situations.
0: I really like the idea of cyclical linguistic um, development there. Because yes, you can see how over summer holidays, if you go back, to, you know, the country where you personally grew up and you take the children, yes, they would maybe get more input in that monolingual situation, wouldn't they? And yes, and that's really interesting. I've not heard anybody use the sort of cyclical idea. But I guess it's a bit like to compare it to feeding children. um, I had a really fussy eater, one of my children, and the doctor said, well, don't look at what he ate today. Look at, you know, the kind of over the week and take a more long term view of it. And actually, he's absolutely fine. You don't need to worry. About the development long term, so maybe languages could be a bit more like that, I suppose.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, and, and with a kind of a, probably a fairly significant majority of the families I've worked with over the years, who have had more than two languages, you need to make a choice to allow one of those to be passive most of the time, and then to activate it when you can through, for example, you know, immersion experiences in the country, whether that's summer camps or visiting family, because you know, in a busy life, if you've got parents who speak two different languages and the children go to th- school in a third, sometimes finding time to try and keep them using our, both our languages ends up being really stressful and ends up being kind of more, more pressure on the kids and then they, they pull away from it because, you know, I don't want to go to Saturday school all day every week because I have Spanish in the morning and Greek in the afternoon. And so you need to stop and think, you know, what, what are, what are our goals with each of these languages, and what's our plan? And your plan isn't always to, you know, push everything at the same time. Sometimes it's to really focus on this one, keep the other one going at a passive level, running slowly, and then reactivate it.
0: That's really interesting. What um, what kind of things stop parents from passing a language or languages onto their children? I
1: think the number one thing that I have seen over my career is. Um, external disapproval so the the place that they live disapproves of their language um, either actively people telling them oh you shouldn't use that language with your children or kind of more implicitly making it not nice for that language to be used in public or making it somehow stigmatizing so I see that a lot Uh, misinformation being given the wrong information I had a friend once who was Canadian and married to a Her husband was from colombia he was spanish speaking and they had been told by a pediatrician only use english for the first two years and then introduce spanish and so that's what they did and of course their child didn't develop in spanish properly and you know that's not written about anywhere (laughs) that particular strategy and so that goes back to knowing knowing something about the theory knowing something about the process so that if a pediatrician says to you oh don't do this you can say actually you know we have a plan and it's going to be fine and I have met, uh, I've met parents who didn't pass on a language out of pure disinterest. I don't think my language is particularly useful for my child. I don't want them to go back to my country. Uh, not many people speak it. So that kind of, you know, they devalue their own language themselves. And in some cases, parents choosing not to pass it on for trauma-related reasons. So, I, you know, I've seen this quite a lot in families who relocated from war zones, um, who chose not to pass on the language to their child because they wanted to break ties. With, with that language and so you know the, the reasons vary um and i think some of them are more valid than others and some of them need to be addressed and others need to be accepted
0: yes i've had um an interesting conversation with a friend who has a polish surname but she doesn't speak polish and her father doesn't speak polish because his father had you know tried very hard not to pass polish on because he'd been traumatized during world war Two, and um he basically didn't speak to his children very much because he didn't have very much English and he refused to speak Polish. It, you know every situation is obviously unique to each family but it's um, something that I don't know that we talk about that much that trauma can be a really strong reason not to pass a language on.
1: Yeah and I think it's something that you know it depends on how necessary that language is for children to access other parts of their culture or their religion um, and you know kind of the and the parental ties to the country if they have it and I, I do think that sometimes it's the right decision for parents to make.
0: Yes we tend to kind of uh, eulogize about passing languages on and how it's a wonderful thing but yes it's got to be taken case by case hasn't it? How should parents choose which languages to use to communicate with their children?
1: Oh that's a tricky question. Um, my you know I guess. So, I'm an English speaker and I chose to speak French with my children when they were young, so I don't think it's problematic for for parents to choose not to speak, you know, what's normally called their mother tongue or their first language with their children. Where I find it difficult is that if, you know, people who are raised in an area where they speak a dialect and there's a high status language that goes along with it. So, for example, somebody raised in Cyprus who was raised speaking Cypriot Greek but went to school in what they would call proper Greek, will often have a tendency to want to use proper Greek with their child because they think it's more valuable or the same, you know, people who are raised in speaking dialects in Italy or in other countries will want to pass on the kind of the proper high status variety of the language rather than the dialect that they were raised speaking. And, and that can be problematic if it interferes with the parent child relationship. So, you know, if you were raised in, in, in Cypriot Greek and that's the language of your heart, then you should speak that language to your child because otherwise you're going to, you know, cause cracks in that relationship with them if you're trying to use a language that you don't kind of feel an emotional connection with and that you didn't have those emotional relationships with. And so I think it needs to be a balance. And we need to think about language not only for their usefulness, but also for their connection to identity and family and choose the one that's the best fit for the family, not the one that you think has the most economic value.
0: Yes, economic value isn't the only kind of uh, reason, is it? Um, yeah, we talk a lot about usefulness of languages, even in MFL education. So I think, especially in the UK context, we're a bit fixated on how useful something is. And I like how you said what language is in your heart. That's uh, perhaps a really good rule of thumb for parents to think about. Yeah, and that's what and I
1: encourage parents to use that framework with their children too. If you you know if your child stops speaking your language with you because they'd rather speak English, a part of that conversation is that this is the language of my heart. It's the language I was raised in. I'm going to continue using it with you, even if you prefer to use English with me.
0: Yes. So another trend that I have seen on social media is to quote a research statistic. For example, children need twenty to thirty percent exposure in a language in order to learn it. And I feel like we should be wary of statistics being used in this way. What do do you think?
1: I think that we should be wary, but I think we also need to realize that children need to hear quite a lot of a language to develop it properly. Those statistics are often kind of bandied around because parents really want to know, but how much, you know, they want a clear answer of, if I use this much of my language with my child, they'll be fine. And, you know, going back to the children aren't sponges analogy children will react very differently to the same amount of input. So you may only get two hours a day with your child, with your oldest child, and they speak your language fluently. And with your younger child, they hardly speak it at all. But you know, when we look at research, it is true that when researchers are looking to study bilingual children, they have to put a benchmark somewhere. Um, and kind of traditionally, it's been, you know, bandied around in research that 20% is a is a good benchmark to put. So if they don't get at least 20% in the language, they're, they're very unlikely to be bilingual. Um, but I think that, again, that could be a bit, a bit of a red herring in terms of what kind of input they're getting. So if you think about when you're at home with your children every day, and we've all been at home with our children a lot um, lately, what kind of language do we use with them most frequently? And a lot of the times the language we use with our children when we're at home with them is language that's directed at getting them to do what we want them to do. So it's short sentences, it's directives, it's instructions. It's not particularly rich for language acquisition purposes. And so if if your children get three hours of your language every day, but you're just saying, pick up your clothes, go put away your lunch, you know, this kind of repetitive language, they're not going to get very far. Maybe your children only get two hours a day in your language, but you read with them and you play games with them and you make sure that you're really engaging in language. They'll get a lot farther with that. And so the statistic doesn't reflect the quality that they're getting. And quality is more important than quantity.
0: So I think that's really important for parents to be aware of that the statistic can kind of hide um other discussions that are important like you're saying about the quality of the exposure so you know if you've got this idea that only 30 percent exposure is going to be enough and you feel like you're doing 29 percent um it could be that your 29 percent is you know very rich and um, interesting language use and that's incredibly valuable whereas you know just like you say it's not the number of hours it's the what you do with those hours that matters isn't it
1: it is and i think it always also goes back to what's your goal for any particular language for your child and so you know if you have a language that's used by a very small portion of your family and you just want your kids to be able to say hi to those family members it doesn't need as much input um you know a language you want your kids to be communicative in to be able to speak doesn't need as much input as a language you want your kids to be literate in to be able to read and write and so that all goes back to you know what do you want for each language for your children and then aligning how you go about that with the goal that you've set.
0: So yes I know that you help families work together to create a family language plan. Um, could you give us a brief overview of why having a plan is important and how it works as the children are born and then as they grow up with two or more languages please
1: So a family language plan essentially starts with that goal setting so we have these languages. In our family or in our community. They're important to us. Uh, And we need to decide if we want our kids to be able to speak them and understand them to read them and write them on a basic level or, you know, academically to go to school in them. Those are very different goals. And then you map out. You know, these people are going to always use this language with my child. These people are always going to use this language. Ah, We've set a literacy goal for this language and I'm the only person that uses it. So we need to broaden that input and so it helps parents think through you know it's like if you're going on a road trip you need to know where you're going to need to know you know to to choose what road to take and so that family language plan is a guide for families to help them understand what they need to do to meet their goals but it's also to help them reflect along the way are we getting where we want to be uh, you know, maybe we've moved country. What are we going to do now? Because we're adding in another language, and so a family language plan isn't a isn't a fixed thing. It's a dynamic, living plan that adjusts to each of our children, because all children are different, and to our living circumstances, and to, you know, if the stay-at-home parent goes back to work and we need to find childcare, all of that is adapted. But you're always thinking towards what's really important to us and what we want our children to be able to do with these languages as your endpoint, so that you're making thoughtful decisions along the way about how the languages are going to be supported throughout the different phases of a child's life. So when they're at home with a parent or a caregiver in their early years in primary school and in secondary school.
0: That sounds brilliant. And I'm sure people who are listening might already be on the journey of raising children with two or more languages. Is it too late if you don't already have a plan? to make one for going forward
1: no definitely not and the vast majority of people who attend my um my seminars are already somewhere along the journey every once in a while we have a couple who are pregnant and we all clap and say yay (laughs) um but you know the vast majority of people start looking for something when things are not going right and that's just reality a lot of families go into raising bilingual children thinking, oh, it'll be easy if you speak your language and I speak my language. And it's when it's not really working that they start looking for, oh boy, what could we do? So I meet a lot of families who are in that, oh boy, what can we do phase? And we look at, again, from where we are, what are your goals and how are we going to change what you're doing to give your kids a better chance of reaching them? It is true that the older the kids are, the harder it is to make up some of the Some of the language, say, loss or or non-development that's already happened, but but it shouldn't ever be impossible.
0: Yes. So one of the key moments in a child's language development is when they start school or they start spending more time with caregivers outside the home. And we're going to look in more detail at this transition in part two of our chat. But just to round off here, how does being an informed parent help with these transitions, such as starting school or changing country or children growing up and making their own decisions about which languages to use?
1: So I think it helps just in being able to anticipate what might happen. So it's definitely true that if you are a non-English speaking parent raising your child here in the UK, when your child starts school, they are going to start eventually to prefer English because that's the language they spend all day in. And so being aware of that means that you can kind of proactively plan for how you'll counterbalance it. It means that you can have proactive conversations with your children's caregivers or teachers about, you know, the the language they've been using at home and how important it is. And so it just means that you are more aware of what you need to do in the next steps to help your child continue to successfully use your language.
0: That's brilliant. Thanks so much for joining me, Erwin. And we will keep exploring this really fascinating topic, especially in relation to school, um, a bit more in part two. Thank you. Thank you very much.